welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This sermon is taken from the 2013 Israel and End Time Prophecy Conference. This is the evening service of Sunday the 8th of September 2013. Here's Dr. Steve Cook. Well, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew in chapter 21. And I want to uh, share a message this evening I've entitled, Israel's Desolate House. I'd like to also share just a little bit about our ministry. We have some brochures back there on the table by the uh, sign-in book for the visitors. And on this brochure, inside of it, you will find uh, a lot of information about Jewish Worldwide Mission Ministries. And, uh, and there's some uh, uh, requests that you can also look at on the back of that. Tells you a lot about our ministry. Our ministry basically is twofold. And uh, our ministry is twofold. And basically it's the same twofold ministry of the local church. To evangelize the lost and edify the saints. The only difference is ours is primarily in areas of dense Jewish population. And so uh, I've been coming over here now to uh, Great Britain uh, for a specific reason. And that is I've been going into areas of dense Jewish population, Manchester, um, in the area cities around Manchester, such as uh, uh, Presswich, which uh, and that, and Leeds, and, and Preston, and, and Barry. Uh, those areas right there, uh, there's, there's several synagogues in that area. Manchester is the second largest area of Jewish population in Great Britain. Now, London, obviously, Gilders Green would be the largest area of Jewish population. And I met a pastor, Tony Pierce. Some of you may know him. And uh, Tony Pierce has invited me to come there uh, on my next visit. Actually, he invited me to come on this one, but I was already booked up. And so I'm looking forward uh, to coming back again in the spring. I'll be coming back in the spring, and the churches I've been with in Manchester are going to combine, and we're going to have a Jewish evangelism uh, seminar where I'm going to actually teach them how to effectively uh, reach out to the Jewish people. Um, back there on the table also, you'll see several gospel tracts. I brought four with me, but there's several more on my website that you can click and read it in a PDF format, read the whole track. I provide these free of of charge uh, to areas where they want to uh, have a Jewish outreach. And so as God provides me with the funds and the support uh, to, present, uh, you know, to produce this type of literature, uh, we'll continue to, uh, to uh, make it available free of charge. Um, God has been so gracious. Uh, we also have a, a, a prayer card back there. Some of you have been asking about my wife, uh, who's had lupus for 29 years, but uh, she's had some major back surgery and major uh, vertebrae surgery uh, in the last uh, year. And so she's uh, still going through some therapy, and it's difficult for her to travel on length of time because of that. But uh, she's been to England uh, twice with me, actually. And uh, we've, uh, we've enjoyed our stay here. She loves fish and chips, and you all got a little bit of that around here. But uh, it's a blessing. To be here, and I'm honored that you would allow me to come. I'm honored that you all would come. But how many of you were here this morning, and you came back this evening? I'm praise the Lord. <clears throat> that doesn't always happen, but I'm glad it did tonight. Uh, and for those of you who have not uh, met me or or seen me or heard me uh, preach, uh, uh, listen. If you get done before I do, leave quietly. That's all I ask. Okay. <laughs> no. 
we, we want to be a blessing to you. And uh, tonight I want to uh, get right into the message. And I need to move this over just a tad bit so that I can see it. And I don't have to keep looking around at the screen. Uh, but <clears throat> tonight I want to look at Israel's desolate house. I know it says Matthew 23. Uh, but I, we're going to look at a, a, a verse of Scripture in chapter 21 before we do that. Uh, when you see this right here, and I don't know if you, how many of have ever been to Israel? Anybody here? Two people, three, four? Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I have a tour to Israel, December the 2nd through the 12th, uh, this year. And um, for you all, I'm from the South, for you all, uh, you know, you can go with me uh, and you would just book your own airfare, meet us at the airport. Uh, it would be 1800 U.S. dollars, which is a lot less in pounds. Uh, but uh, if you'd like to go, it's eight nights in four and five-star hotels. Uh, our guide, Boaz Shalgi, is an Israelite, <clears throat> and he lives in the Hula Valley down at the foothills of the uh, Golan Heights. And three years ago, outside of the empty tomb, I had the privilege of leading Boaz to Jesus Christ. And uh, now he has his own tour company. I use him as my guide. And uh, Boaz found his kinsman redeemer, Pastor, and that was wonderful. Uh, you don't get much better than that than to lead a Jewish person to the Lord outside the empty tomb. Praise the Lord. And he had, and he had communion with us that night. Praise the God. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So uh, if you'd like to go and meet Boaz, uh, a lot of people just call him Brother B., and, uh, but I'd uh, love to have you go with me. And uh, we still have some, uh, some rooms available. And uh, just talk to me after the service. I'll get you a brochure and all of the information that you need. If you go to Israel with me, you go into uh, a place where they have a model of the temple. That's where I took this picture. And this, this model of the temple, as it stood in the days of Christ, the Herodian temple, uh, it represented the presence and the power of God. People in Jerusalem knew about the temple. People outside Jerusalem knew about the temple. There was something special about the temple in those days. That's where God came and visited with the Jewish people. And that's where the power of God was manifested, especially on the Day of Atonement. Jesus said concerning this temple in Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 13, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. What had happened was there were those money changers and those that were selling sacrifices, animals, that were taking advantage of the people but I want you to notice that Jesus calls it my house. The temple was God's house. And Jesus identifies himself as God in this particular verse of Scripture. Turn with me now to chapter 23, and let's look at verse 38. And in chapter 23, just two chapters later, <laughs> in verse number 38, notice what Jesus says. Behold, your house, your house is left unto you desolate. Question, why the difference? Chapter 21, verse 13, my house. Chapter 23, verse 38, he calls it your house. Why the difference? 
And I think the difference can be found if we look at chapter 23 in the preceding verse, verse 37. And notice what Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Now, I could stop and preach a message on those last four words. And you would not. You would not what? You would not accept Jesus as your Messiah. You would not receive Jesus as your Messiah. Jesus said, how often would I have gathered thy children under my wings? But you would not. Sadly, today, there are many who know Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world, but they would not. So often, many people will come and hear the preaching of God's Word Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, special meeting, Easter, Christmas time, and they'll come and they'll hear the preaching, and God will bring them under conviction of their sin, and they would not. They would not, just like the Jews. They would not receive Jesus. And so now you could put Ichabod over the doorway. The glory departed. It was my house. Now it's your house. Not my house. You didn't accept me. You didn't receive me as you should have. And if anyone should have known who Jesus was, it should have been the Jewish people. For to them was given the oracles of God. To them the prophets came, but they stoned the prophets. They rejected their prophecies. When Jesus came, he identified himself in so many ways, in so many different words, and they would not. When he stood before the people of Israel and Pilate came before them with Barabbas on one side and and with Jesus on the other side, and he said, you have a custom during the Passover season. Well, you have a custom that you release one prisoner, set him free. Whom would you that I release unto you? And they cried out, Barabbas, and crucify Jesus. They would not. They would not. They would not. You and I who are Christians, we have a responsibility to sow the seed. It's still God who gives the increase. I preach, I tell, I lift up my voice like a trumpet to sound the alarm before God's chosen people, Israel. And most would not. But occasionally, like Boaz and a few others in New York City, and many in Ukraine. I have seen Jewish people come to Jesus, and more Jews have come to Jesus in the last 20 years than in the last 2,000 years. Did you know that? There's a whole lot of shaking going on in the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel chapter 37. Bone coming up on bone, sinews and flesh, but there is no breath of life in them. They are still under judicial judgment of God, eyes that they should not see, Ears that they should not hear to this day, 
But I believe that God is unstopping their ears and pulling the scales off their eye. And more and more Jews are realizing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah when he came 2,000 years ago. Jesus fulfilled 324 messianic prophecies. When he comes again, he will fulfill 329 more in the second coming. You can go to my website and download those 324 prophecies that he has fulfilled, including New Testament fulfillment scriptures. In verse 38, verse 39, Jesus goes on and says, Behold, that word behold, interesting word. If words could speak, the word behold would be shouting at the top of its lungs. Behold! You know, it's easier to illustrate the word behold than it is to define it. Let me illustrate the word behold. <gasps> Wide-eyed, open-mouthed, slack-jawed amazement. That's behold. Behold! Your house, Jesus says, is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me till you shall say, Henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. I want you to notice that word, till. We call it until, sometimes till. Three minutes till four. Three minutes until it's four o'clock. That word till or until is very important. Small word, great Heavy weight. There are four untils that must come to pass before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to understand, I said four untils that must come to pass before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not the secret coming. Some people think the secret coming and the second coming are all the same thing. They're not. The secret coming is the rapture of the church. The second coming is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the secret coming, not every eye shall see him. But in the second coming, every eye shall see him. And they shall weep and wail because of him as they look upon him whom they have pierced. The secret coming has no signs. The rapture of the church Jesus coming to the clouds to meet, to, to, to translate the church, to catch away his bride is imminent. Could happen tonight. Could happen before I finish this message. That's the secret coming. The second coming has distinct signs. And it's at least seven years later after the rapture. You follow me? Having said that, let's look at four untils. That must come to pass. Now, I'm not looking for a sign. I'm listening for a sound. Amen? The trumpet will sound. I'm out of here in a twinkling of an eye. But there are distinct signs for the second coming. And my friend, if we see the second coming signs, we know the secret coming is much sooner and much closer. Having said that, look at Romans chapter 11. And I'm going to put the scriptures on the... Uh, on the screen, but if you want to look at them in your Bible, I would recommend that. If not, at least jot down the references and do it later. 
until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Notice what the Bible says in Romans 11, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should not be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until, there's that word, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now what does that mean, the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, we're going to find that out in just a few moments. But I want you to notice the word until. The word until, vitally important. First of all, the question I ask in Romans 11 is, hath God cast away his people? There are some today who believe in replacement theology, that the church has replaced the nation of Israel in the covenant blessings that God has made with Abraham. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Paul asked that question. Hath God cast away his people Israel? And God said, or Paul said, God forbid. And then Paul goes on and says, I am an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. The fact that I have been born again, the fact that I am a Christian, is evidence that God has not cast away his people. According to uh, verse 8, it says that God has given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, unto this day. In verse 11, he says, I say that have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, notice this, important stuff. Why has God judicially blinded and stopped the ears of the Jewish people? God tells us right here in Romans 11 and 11, God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. Why? To provoke them unto jealousy. God is provoking Israel to jealousy. Yes, he came unto his own, the Bible tells us in John 1.11, and his own received him not. But as many as do receive him, to them give he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Praise the Lord. We, have, we owe a great debt of gratitude to the Jewish people. My Savior was a Jew. I often ask people, how many of you know someone Jewish? And just a couple, two or three people will raise their hand. And I say, how many of you know Jesus? And they all raise their hand. I said, then you know at least one Jew. Amen. Jesus was a Jew. He came, was born to the tribe of Judah, household of David, to a virgin, a spouse to a man named Joseph. And the virgin's name was Mary. He was raised a, a, an Orthodox Jew. The Bible says, through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles to, to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, the diminishing them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. We have two words there, two terms, riches of the world, riches of the Gentile. I want you to know that both of those mean the same thing. The riches of the world, the riches of the Gentile, both refer to the church age. Because today, the church age, God is calling out a people unto himself. Those who trust Jesus Christ are baptized into the family of God. The fact of the matter is, the Bible says that even Jews that are saved become the body of Christ in this dispensation. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Greek, bond or free. The fact of the matter is, 
When Jews get saved, Jews ought not go to a different church than Gentile believers. I'm sorry if you have a problem with that, but uh, it's not scriptural. Jews that are saved are part of the body of Christ. Gentiles that are saved, part of the body of Christ. We're all baptized into one body. And I believe that Jews that have been saved ought to get involved in a local Bible-believing, burning bush, Baptist church, amen, like this one. They ought to learn and be edified and trained and build up, and they ought to get busy working through the, the ministry of the local New Testament church. That's what I believe. Because that's scriptural, and I can support that. I can't support Messianic congregations because they're not scriptural. Jews need to worship with Gentiles if they're both saved, born again, part of the same bride. Amen? I don't want my hand to take off and go down the street and my right foot walk over here and go to a different church. That'd be kind of uncomfortable. Amen? Have you ever considered Jonah foreshadows Israel? It's true. He did. God told Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. So what does Jonah do? He goes to Tarshish, 180 degrees, the opposite direction. And while he's on the boat, what happens? Oh, a great storm rises up. He's asleep. Sailors wake him up, say, what's happening? What have you done? You, you're a man of God. You can't hide it when you're born again, amen? People know that you're a Christian. They're watching you. And, and Jonah, <laughs> he confessed that he was... Uh, not doing what God told him to do. And you know what the men did? They tossed him overboard, didn't they? They set him aside. And he went down, 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 down into the depths of the sea until he was swallowed by a great fish, a whale. And he spent three days in, cruising in the belly of a whale. Can you imagine? Until finally he came to the end of himself. And he cried out to God. And the whale spit him up on the bank and said, God said, now go do what I told you to do to begin with. You see, that's a picture of Israel. God told Israel, I want you to be a special people under, my, under myself. I want you to be, you're my chosen people, and you're to be my representative here upon this earth. But they didn't do a very good job of it, did they? They fell into idolatry. They, they waxed cold and indifferent. The Bible said in the book of Judges that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no God in Israel. Sounds like a lot like a, a lot of backslidden Baptists, I know. <laughs> Just kidding. But the fact of the matter is, we as Christians often are guilty of doing the same thing that Israel did. You see, Jonah was cast aside, and the storm subsided. And when the storm subsided, he became a blessing to a boatload of Gentiles. The Bible says that Jonah, when he was reconciled to God, he went to Nineveh and he preached, and the greatest revival recorded in the Bible is found in the city of Nineveh. He became a blessing to a whole nation of Gentiles. Notice what verse 15 says in Romans. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? God has not cast away Israel. He has set them aside temporarily, not permanently. God said, I will scatter Israel. Jeremiah 31.10 we used this morning. God said, I will scatter Israel, then I will gather Israel, then I will keep Israel. 
When Israel comes to the end of themselves, like Jonah pictured in the book of Jonah did, and he, when Israel cries out to God, my friend, they'll be a blessing to a whole world of Gentiles. Make no mistake about it. Because the Bible says they are God's glory. Israel, my glory, he calls them. Blindness in part has happened until, unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. We still haven't got to what does that term fullness of the Gentile means. Well, the fullness of the Gentiles means that the last person that trusts Jesus Christ as Savior becomes the, a member of the body of Christ. And when that happens, guess what? The rapture will occur. You see, I don't know when the rapture will occur, except to tell you when that last person is saved, I believe God's going to tell his son, son, go get your bride. And I believe that they're already beginning to warm up their lips to sound the trumpet. I think it's that close. When the fullness of the Gentiles come in, if this is the riches of the Gentiles and the riches of the world, if this church age is the riches of both, listen, the fullness of the Gentiles is when the last person is saved in the church age. And that will bring to a close the church age and the rapture will occur. That's why God hasn't come, hasn't, Jesus hasn't come back yet over in 2 Peter chapter 3. Why hasn't he come? Well, the Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is what? Long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Jesus hasn't come for his bride yet because he's allowing people the opportunity to be saved. But God's not going to keep knocking forever at the door of the hearts of lost people. In other words, the rapture must occur before the second coming. That's the secret coming, if you will, before the second coming. Second until, found in Luke 21, 24. We saw this verse this morning. And notice what Luke 21, verse 24 says. And they, Israel, shall fall by the edge of the sword, shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the... Gentiles until, there's the word, until, until what? Until the times of the Gentile be fulfilled. We just saw the fullness of the Gentiles. Now we see the times of the Gentiles. What's the difference? Well, we're going to find out. Back in Daniel chapter 2, we had a dream by Nebuchadnezzar, a dream of a statue, a great statue with a head of gold and chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and feet mixed with iron and clay. The Bible says that on those feet were ten toes pointing forward because what they had to say was still yet future and still is future. In that statue, it was Daniel who interpreted his dream and told him that the head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar's empire, the Babylonian empire, and the greatness of that great city of Babylon. By the way, Babylon is the second most mentioned city in the Bible. It is the most mentioned topic in the book of Revelation. Think about that. 
One out of every nine verses in the book of the Revelation has to do with Babylon. Babylon will be resurrected and become the seat of the Antichrist, the beast, that world dictator. That's another message altogether, though. The chest of silver, chest and arms of silver, represented the Medo-Persian Empire. Two appendages, because you have the Medes and the Persian, and together they came in, and they were able to conquer the Babylonians and take over their kingdom. Then he talked about the brass empire. The brass empire, the belly and thighs of brass, represented the Greek empire. And, of course, even Greece was called the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. And then the legs of iron, the iron empire was the Roman empire with their Roman chariots and their Roman spears and, and all those types of things. During the days of Christ, the Romans ruled the land. But the feet mixed with clay and iron, or excuse me, mixed with uh, iron and clay, having ten toes, represent a future Gentile empire that has not yet been resurrected. That would be the revived Roman Empire. You would notice from gold to silver to brass to iron to feet mixed with iron and clay, each empire is degraded in its quality, in its value, if you will, monetarily. There's coming a day when the Antichrist, the beast that the Bible calls him in Revelation 13, will rise up out of the sea and become a world dictator, become the head of a new, revived Roman Empire. Look at the European Union folks. I know that that's probably near and dear to some of you, but let's face it. It looks a whole lot like the old Roman Empire. In the fourth century, Constantine, the Council of Nicaea, he said, all Christians should divest themselves from the detestable company of the Jew. They got into an argument over Passover and Easter. Constantine was the founder of the Roman Catholic Church. He told all the Christians, so-called Christians, to divest themselves from the detestable company of the Jew. Anti-Semitism infiltrated the Catholic Church, followed by the Crusades, followed by many other acts of anti-Semitism. We fast forward to the scenes I showed you this morning of the Holocaust and how six million Jewish people were killed. Four million of them died at Auschwitz-Birkenau alone in the death camps there between 1940 and 1945. Jeremiah said, For alas, that day is great so that there is none like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. And then he says, But he shall be saved out of it. You see, after the rapture of the church, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that once the church has been taken out of the way, the Antichrist, this man of sin, the son of perdition, will rise up and will not be hindered. Today, God is hindering the working of Satan through the church, the local New Testament church. You say, well, preacher, when the rapture occurs, why, the Holy Spirit will be gone. I beg to differ. 
The Holy Spirit will not be gone. If the Holy Spirit is God, and he is, he's omnipresent. There's never a place where God's not, amen? So even though the church is gone, the Holy Spirit's still on earth, but the Holy Spirit will no longer restrain the working of Satan upon this earth. The Antichrist will sign a treaty with the nation of Israel. And Israel will believe that they have peace and safety. Jesus said, when men speak of peace and safety, sudden destruction cometh upon you. You see, after the rapture of the church, when the Antichrist enters into a covenant treaty with the nation of Israel, and by the way, that's what initiates the tribulation, that signing of a treaty between Israel and And the beast, the Antichrist, the world dictator who becomes the head of a revived Roman Empire. When that occurs, Jeremiah says, oh my, the time of Jacob's trouble. The rapture must occur before the second coming. The times of the Gentiles, including the tribulation, must occur before the second coming. Third, until, found in the book of Hosea, chapter 5, verse 15. Maybe you don't know this verse so well, but it's a very important verse in biblical prophecy, end-time prophecy, concerning Israel in particular. Notice what the Bible says in Hosea 5, 15. God speaking to the nation of Israel says, I will go and return to my place until, there it is, Till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Now, let's break this verse down. God says, I'm going to go and return to my place. He's in heaven. Israel's on earth. He said, I'm going to be gone and I'm going to stay gone. Until they acknowledge their offense. What offense would that be? Well, we read it earlier. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you under my wings, gathered unto myself as a a, a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you what? You would not. You would not receive my only begotten son. Israel has to come to the knowledge that they have sinned in the rejection of Jesus, the Messiah. I will go and return to my place, God said, until you acknowledge your offense and you what? You seek my face. What's going to cause Israel to seek the face of God? And I remind you, Jonah is a picture of Israel going down, down, down into tribulation until he finally came to the end of himself. When did you get saved? You got saved when you came to the end of yourself. If you haven't come to the end of yourself, you haven't gotten saved yet. Israel's going to come to the end of themselves. Why? Because they're going through the time of Jacob's trouble now. That's the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. It's distinctly Jewish. Its Its primary purpose is to bring Israel to its knees. And trust me, Israel is going to hit their knees. The city of Jerusalem will fall under the army of the Antichrist. You see, the Antichrist is going to gather his armies together where? 
Armageddon. But not one battle is fought in Armageddon. Oh, no. No, there's not a battle fought in Armageddon. So to call it the Battle of Armageddon is really not a good title. It really isn't a battle of Armageddon. It's a campaign of Armageddon, if you want to call that. But the fact of the matter is, it's only a staging area. And it's in Armageddon that the Antichrist will bring his armies together so that he might attack the city of Jerusalem. And notice what Zechariah said. And I notice you have your Bible here turned to the book of Zechariah. And I figured it was probably chapter 12, 13, or 14. But it, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Notice what God says. God says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem. You see, you thought Antichrist was going to do that. God says, I'm going to do it. Is that right? God's going to gather the armies of the world against Jerusalem? Well, God, it hasn't been the first time that God's used the world to bring Israel to its knees. It won't be. Listen, God can do whatever God wants to do. It's always for our good and his glory. Israel needs to be brought to their knees so that they will finally come to call upon the Lord. And so... The armies of the nations, the armies of Antichrist are going to battle against the city. The Bible says the city shall be taken and the houses shall be uh, ravished, uh, rifled rather, and the, and the women shall be ravished, the Bible says. And the Bible says in Matthew 24, verse 16, Jesus told the Jews, hey, when you see the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist desecrate the temple. That means the temple has to be built, amen, during the tribulation period. And that's what I was talking about this morning with Gershon Solomon the temple faithful. They're preparing to build a third temple as I speak. The temple institute is already made to furnishing. The priesthood is being trained and fitted for their garments. I'm telling you, we're living on the, on the very brink of the, last, of the last days. We ought to get busy. Time's running out, amen? But the Bible says, Jesus told the Jews, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel in Daniel 9, 27 to be exact, he says, flee, flee for the mountains. Now, where are the mountains at in Israel? Well, you would have to go southeast, cross the Jordan River into the country that's now called Jordan. It'll be called Israel one day. Make no mistake about it. It belongs to Israel. But the land across the Jordan, across from the city of Elat, the southern tip of Israel, it's called in the Bible times, Edom. And the Bible says that there's a place in the wilderness that God has prepared in the land of Edom near the ancient city of Basra. And if you were to go find that ancient city of Basra, the area in the land of Edom, you would find a rose-red city called Petra. Petra. You would notice that there is a, a, a cliff and that you can literally walk through that crevice opened up by an earthquake for 1.6 miles. I was just there this past December. You walk down into the city of Petra. And when you come out, you have to walk up. And so I rode a horse out of the way. <laughs> About 1.6 miles. The Bible says in Revelation, even in Revelation 12, 6, that the woman being Israel fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Many people believe Petra is that place 
When you walk through and you get to the end of that 1.6 miles, you see a city built and hewed out of the rocks by the, uh, by the group of people called the Nabataeans. I stood in front of this building here called the Treasury. This is a wonderful place for the remnant of Jews to go. I preached to the group that I was leading there on a prophecy tour, and I took them to Isaiah. And Isaiah speaks about the return of Jesus Christ. He said, who is this coming upon a white horse, garments soaked in blood from the land of Edom, near the ancient city of Basra? And of course, we know who that rider of the white horse is the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go with me there in December. I'd love to have you. But it's a wonderful place to see. There are some people who are literally burying Bibles here with passages highlighted with a, with a marker so that the remnant of Jews will know what's happening. I will go and return to my place, Hosea 5.15 says, Till you acknowledge your offense and seek my face in your affliction, he says, you will seek me early. Until you acknowledge your offense. My friend, you cannot have regeneration without first having repentance. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3 and 13, 5, two verses apart, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. What might the Jews say? Here is a woman praying at the sarcophagus of King David. And I asked the guide, Michael Almog, back a long time ago, what is she doing? And Michael told me, a believing Jew, Michael says she is mourning for her Messiah. How sad. He came 2,000 years ago and they missed him. What might the Jews say? And I believe it's already recorded in the Word of God in Isaiah, beginning with verse 50, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Is that not what the Jews did 2,000 years ago? They could say, surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. Could the Jews not see, uh, pray this prayer as a prayer of repentance? Is this not speaking of what Israel did 2,000 years ago? All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone to our own way. The Lord laid upon him, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Would that not be a prayer of confession and repentance? As I said, no regeneration without repentance. God said, I will go and return to my place until you acknowledge your offense, repent, and seek my face. Israel's regeneration must occur before the second coming. 
Lastly, when they pray, cry out to God for deliverance, just as Jonah prayed to God, Lord, salvation is of the Lord. What happened? Well, then God delivered Jonah from his tribulation. And when Israel does that, and by the way, two-thirds of the Jews will die during the tribulation period. There are 18 million Jews approximately today in the world. In the Holocaust, 6 million Jews died. In the tribulation, if that were to happen beginning tomorrow, 12 million Jews would die. But when Jesus finally splits that eastern sky, you know what the Jews are going to do? They're going to stand up and praise God as they see the rider of the white horse coming. And they will then fulfill that fourth until. And what is the fourth until? It's the one we began with back in Matthew chapter 23. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Wow. God has not forsaken his people. He's given them promises that he will scatter them, gather them, and then keep them. He said, when you confess your offense, cry out. In your affliction, it'll take the tribulation to bring them to their knees, but finally the remnant, and God's always had a remnant, they will cry out to God. God has not forsaken Israel, and God has not forsaken you. I don't know if you're saved or not, but let me tell you what the Bible has to say. The Bible has to say that there is none righteous, no, not one, and that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible is quite clear that we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. If we could work our way to heaven, Jesus would never have come and died on the cross of Calvary. But because we can't work our way to heaven, Jesus came out of love, took our place, became our sacrifice, our substitute. He took our death for us. Isn't God good? And not only did he die but he then conquered death and hell and rose from the grave. The Bible says because he lives, we can live also. Where's Jesus at today? Well, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for all who believe. But you'll never go to heaven apart from repenting of your sin. To realize that you have an urgent need, and that need is a Savior. If we could save ourselves, we would have no need of a Savior, but we can't. The very best that we can do is just the very best we can do, and it would never be good enough to satisfy a holy, righteous God. It requires blood, death. The wages, the penalty of sin is death. Jesus said, Father, I'll do it for them. He came down with his own free will and died in our stead. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God committeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. 
Preacher, what do I have to do to be saved? It's as simple as ABC. A, you need to acknowledge that you're a sinner. Not only were you born wrong, born a sinner, but you've also committed sin. You're a double-dip sinner. And when you realize that you are a sinner who cannot save himself, then you have to acknowledge that you need help. And that's the second letter of the acronym. A, acknowledge your sin. B, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died according to the Scripture, was raised again according to the Scripture. Bible says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus shall believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. A, acknowledge that you're a sinner. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. C, call. Call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Preacher, it can't be that simple. It's so simple. I have seen children age five. I have three grandchildren age five, all born again, followed the Lord and believers' baptism. I showed the pastor a picture of my middle grandson, sleeps with his Bible every night. Praise the Lord. How about you? Have you been saved? If you were to die today, do you know you would go to heaven? If not, you can't. Jesus stands with outstretched arms saying, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Let me share this picture with you very quickly. This man here, Professor Laviu Brescu, Romania. He was a professor, Virginia Tech University. Professor Librescu had survived the Holocaust. This man was a Jew. 77 years of age, teaching engineering, aeronautics engineering at Virginia Tech University in Blacksburg, Virginia in the USA. 2007, there was a man, a student, who came from South Korea. And he decided to go on a killing spree. He killed 32 people that day at Virginia Tech. 27 students and five faculty members. Now, Professor Librescu of Romania had survived the Holocaust. And today was the day that all of Israel worldwide celebrated Holocaust Remembrance Day. How ironic. And on this day, this 77-year-old Jewish Holocaust survivor told his class one last instruction. Break out the windows, jump out the window, run for your lives. And Professor Librescu walked over to the door of room 204 in that classroom. And when that shooter came, he couldn't open the door. He took his guns out, began to shoot through the door into the body of this 77-year-old Jewish man until finally Professor Labrescu slumped to his death in the floor of room 204. Why am I telling you that? Because 2,000 years ago, a Jew named Jesus died for you, gave his life for you. 
You don't have to die and go to hell. Your sin has been paid for in full. But you must trust Jesus Christ and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. You must invite Jesus Christ into your heart, calling upon the name of the Lord. And if you will, you have the word of God, you have God's word upon it. He will save you. Let's bow our heads, please. Before I go to the Lord in prayer, maybe there's someone here this evening who would like for me to remember them in prayer. If there is, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Maybe there's a Christian here tonight. Maybe there's more than one Christian here tonight. You've already been saved. You know that you're saved. There's no doubt about it. God has spoken to your heart. You know that we're living in the last days now. God's revealed that to you. And you have a desire to be more faithful, to be more obedient. Maybe God has impressed something upon your heart that you need to start doing or haven't been doing. You'd like for this preacher of this church to remember you in prayer. Would you lift up your hand and by that say, pray for me. God bless you. God bless you and you and you. God bless you. I see that hand. Someone else. God spoke to my heart tonight. I know that there's things that I need to begin doing or things that I need to stop doing, whatever, whatever it is. That's between you and God. It's not between you and me. It's between you and God. See, I preached the message God gave me. Now the responsibility shifts for me to you. You need to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Maybe there's someone here tonight who would lift up their hand and say, Preacher, I've never been saved. If I died, I know I'd go to hell. I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. But you know, I'm thinking about it. Would you remember me in prayer? Anyone at all? Preacher, I've never been saved. I know I probably need to be saved. I'd like for you to remember me in prayer. Me remembering you in prayer won't save you, but I do want to pray for you that God would continue to strive with you. Anyone at all? Father in heaven, I pray that you'll have your way in the hearts and lives of these, especially the ones who have raised their hand, acknowledging that the Holy Spirit has spoken to them tonight through the preaching of the word. Lord, I pray that you'll get receive honor and glory from their life. Whatever that need is, Father, I pray that you'll help them, you'll meet that need, that, Father, maybe it's to strengthen them spiritually. Maybe they need to stop doing something or begin doing something. Whatever the case may be, Father, between you and them, I pray that you would receive the glory. And I pray, Father, if there's any here tonight that's never been saved, that, Father, you would just give them no rest until they realize, like the Jews, Jesus is the Messiah, that they need to trust Jesus Christ as their only possible means of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.